0: everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in once again to the podcast. I'm glad that you're here, even if it's just, you know, not literally. I hope that everybody has been doing well, uh, enjoying yourselves. Uh, As I said at the beginning of last week's episode, I'm now moved back into my dorm for my senior year of college, so age is finally catching up with me, I guess. Uh, I've always said I'm an old soul at heart, but now I'm starting to feel old. Hopefully the next Four years won't go by as quickly as the last three years have, but I wouldn't bet the farm on it. So, for this week's episode, before I tell you about my guest and get into our interview, I want to go back to something I've talked about a little bit before, but something that I want to go into a bit more detail now. So, when I started this podcast, I wanted to provide a platform for folks to tell their own stories. Relating to Appalachia, whether they're from Appalachia, whether they moved here, I just wanted to provide a platform for folks to tell their stories. And I wanted to highlight the beauty and the diversity and the complexity of Appalachia because I am proud to be from there. And it's a place that has a lot of difficulties and a lot of challenges, but it's a place that I want to see made better for everybody. But another goal that I had when I started this project was to educate more people, especially you know people my age, on the importance of not only Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, but the New Deal itself. And the reason that I wanted to do that is because when you study American history, American political history, and in some ways when you study world history... Roosevelt's presidency and the New Deal is a watershed moment. What I mean by that is, after it, things were not quite the same as they were before. Not just here in the U.S., but also across the world, when you consider his leading the country through most of World War II. But the New Deal itself not only changed the relationship between the office of the presidency and the rest of the federal government, but more importantly than that, it changed the relationship between the federal government and the citizens of the United States. For the whole of American history before Roosevelt, generally the idea was that people ought to be left alone— and that the federal government did not have a responsibility to provide for material well-being, economic prosperity, and economic rights as we understand them now. Now, a lot of people still feel that way. Maybe some of you all feel that way, that it's not the federal government's place to provide for those rights. But I think it is. So do a lot of other people. And it's okay to disagree about that and to argue as to whether or not that should be the case— What you can argue, though, is that since Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, many people have believed and still believe to this day that it is the federal government's responsibility to provide for the material well-being of its citizens, not just to protect our rights to free speech, free expression, freedom of religion, freedom of press, but our rights to economic well-being, our rights to organize in a labor union our right to relief when economic circumstances are not the best. Ever since Roosevelt, no matter how conservative the president or the Congress, that fundamental idea that the government has those responsibilities to the citizens, we've never been able to get away from that. Now, like I said, I happen to think that's a good thing. I think that we ought to take that a little bit farther. And that is one of the reasons why I've wanted to use this platform as a way to educate other people about the New Deal. Now, I'm not an expert by any means. I often joke that I am an expert on all things Roosevelt and the New Deal, but I'm not. Uh, And I'll be the first to tell you that he, Roosevelt, and the New Deal did not get everything right. There was a lot born from his time in the White House that was bad. But despite that, you can't argue that there was a lot of good that did come from his presidency, and that came from the New Deal. Now, over the next few weeks, I'm going to be planning a series of episodes talking about different programs about the New Deal and their importance when they were enacted, but also their importance to us now. Not just in Appalachia, where we are in desperate need of federal economic revitalization, but across the country and, indeed, in some instances, across the world. In his second inaugural address, Roosevelt said that, and this is one of my favorite quotes by him, The test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. I think that's still the test of our progress. There are a lot of people out there in the United States and across the world who are going without but who should have plenty, and that's a problem. It's a problem that we need to fix, and it is all of our responsibilities to work together to fix it. So until that day, I want to try to do my part in talking about the New Deal, its positive effects, its negative effects, but overall its importance not only to our past but to our future. And to that end, joining me on the podcast this week is Jonathan Alter, who is a noted journalist, author, columnist, who wrote my very favorite book on FDR and the New Deal. It's called The Defining Moment, FDR's First Hundred Days and the Triumph of Hope. And Mr. Alter writes about the first 100 days of Roosevelt's presidency and all of the programs and ideas and ways to bring the country back from the worst of the Great Depression took shape in the early days of Roosevelt's administration. So he and I discuss how he came to write the book, its importance uh, to our own times, the legacy of Roosevelt and the New Deal. Uh, We get into a lot of different topics. It was a great honor of mine to speak with him. I never thought that I'd be able to uh, have an interview with him about uh, the book, and I was just blown away by the fact that he was on my podcast. So... Uh, that may come through in, in the interview a little bit, but uh, I really enjoyed this conversation with Mr. Alter. I hope that you guys enjoy listening to it, and without further delay, let's get into it. Okay, um, Mr. Alter, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Um as I, as I told you in my original email, your book on the first hundred days of uh, FDR's presidency is by far my favorite book that I've read about Roosevelt and the New Deal. And that's uh, saying something because I've read quite a few of them. But uh, well, I you. yeah, of course. And uh, thank you for agreeing to to be interviewed. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about the book about Roosevelt's legacy for the here and now, um, anything you'd like to discuss as well, but, uh, I'll give you the floor to, if you'd like to, to introduce yourself to talk about your experience writing the book. I know it came out a few years ago, uh, but maybe your take on the importance of, of writing about the first hundred days itself. Um, anything you'd like to say, the floor is yours.
1: Uh, okay. Well, thanks for having me. Um, this goes back a ways the, uh, the genesis of this book, which was my first book. Um, I've now written five, uh, and, um, in, um, the, uh, the late nineties, I was, um, kind of searching around. I knew it was time for me to write a book. I was at that time, a columnist at Newsweek magazine in the days when Newsweek was a really great magazine. And, um, I was kind of having some trouble figuring out what to write about. And, um, there's an editor, um, at a big publishing house who wanted me to do a book and we couldn't really settle on a topic. And at that time I was, um, I had a second job, um, which I still have, uh, I had a contract with NBC news. Um, and nowadays, my NBC News contract mostly takes the form of um, going on MSNBC and yakking like I did uh, last night about the primaries right. uh, late in the evening. Um, but at that time in the 90s, uh, I, I was doing pieces like taped pieces um, for the Today Show and NBC Nightly News and, and other um Shows and uh, you may have heard of, I'm sure you probably have, of Jeff Zucker, who most recently was president of CNN and just left that job. At that time, he was the executive producer of The Today Show, which was a very uh, more even more popular show than it is today. And in 1999, I pitched him on a series of pieces about the uh, 20th century, which was coming to an end. And one of the pieces that I pitched him on was and then I ended up doing um, was about the great what ifs of the 20th century. Right. Um, What if the Franz Duke Ferdinand had turned left instead of right in Sarajevo and had not been assassinated? Would we have had uh, World War One? That kind of what if. And one of the ones that I mentioned in passing in this piece was what if. Giuseppe Zangara, who got off five shots at Franklin Roosevelt in February of 1933 in Miami, had killed Roosevelt. Right. And we'd never had the New Deal and we'd never had Roosevelt's leadership in World War Two, you know, how would our world have been different? And so I was uh, talking about that with my editor, and we said, "Oh well, let's you know, let's do a book on like, you know, I should do a book on Roosevelt's interregnum between Hoover and Roosevelt, and then Roosevelt's first hundred days and that moment in history, and and uh, the book eventually was called The Defining Moment." Um, FDR's Hundred Days and the Triumph of Hope. Um, But it almost didn't happen because I submitted my book proposal on September 10th, 2001. And after 9-11, I thought for, you know, a few months, uh, why would I want to write a book about, um, you know, the distant past and Franklin Roosevelt given the cataclysm that has just happened. And I was writing a lot of Newsweek about 9-11 and the aftermath. And then, um, and so I didn't follow up. And, you know, it looked like I wasn't going to do that Roosevelt book. And then in early 2002, um, I I remember kind of waking up with a start in the middle of the night and thinking, you know, Bush isn't cutting it. Um, This is about presidential leadership. Right. And his leadership on this at that by that point he was he kind of started out okay after nine eleven and said a lot of the right things and then he started politicizing it, um, going after Democrats and you know doing other like start talking about Iraq which didn't really have anything to do with nine eleven right and so I said this is about leadership and it took me back to this period of great leadership that Roosevelt exhibited and I you know I started working on the book and then um, because I had another job it was a, you know a long process and two years later I you know had started the book but wasn't that far along and I got cancer and a, and a really um, nasty life threatening kind of cancer and um I I thought, well, you know, I I can't work on this book uh, because I have to fight for my life. Right. Um, And then um, in, I think by, so that was in early 2004. By late 2004, I was feeling well enough that I could resume work on the book. And that book came out in 2006. And then a couple of other interesting things happened. With it that uh, that you might be interested in, um, so the book comes out. It you know it does reasonably well for a first book. Uh, it it doesn't make the main New York Times bestseller list, but it makes a couple of other bestseller lists, and it's just at the. It actually one week was you know tied for number fifteen or something when they used to have an extended list, modest modest success, um, nothing to really write home about. And then, um, in 2007, the paperback came out and, um, so it was, you know, sort of around during the, um, 2008 campaign.
0: Right.
1: And if you remember the economy went to hell in, in 2008, and Obama's elected, and everybody's talking about FDR right. and the economy. You know, the country's curled up in the fetal position the way we were in 1933, and not quite as bad. But And uh, Obama is on 60 Minutes as the president-elect, and uh, he says that, you know, in a very widely watched interview, that he's reading two books... About Franklin Roosevelt, uh, and uh, and so then, the um, New York Times asks Robert Gibbs, his press secretary, you know, what are the books that he's reading? And he says, the defining moment, and then a book by a guy named Gene Edward Smith, um, and that goes in the New York Times, and suddenly, whoosh, right, <laughs> <my boy laughs> has this you know huge second life, life. right. And um, uh, you know, a, a lot of people in the in that kind of situation—they want to read what the new presidents reading, right? Right. But then later on, you'd see well, like all the people around—not all, but a lot of the people around President-elect Obama are reading Jonathan Alter's book, *The Defining Moment*. So I thought that was pretty great. And then and this is really, this is really crazy. So you know, the book starts to sell and becomes a. A pretty consistent seller. And then um, in 2020, um, Joe Biden goes on um, this uh, podcast, Brene Brown, very popular podcast. And he starts talking about my book by name. And he's right. obviously like read it and he's, he said he read it twice. And then at the convention, he's photographed. Uh, you know, remember that Democratic convention was online, based on TV, and they had some still pictures of the nominee. And you, you had to look really closely, but you could see it on his desk. Then later, it was on his desk in the Oval Office. There was a picture of him with his Secretary of State. My books on his desk. So all that kind of thing really um, has has given it life. I don't think that's really answering your question. I think you want me to tell you what the book is about. And I've just told you about, you know, the narrow promotion of the book and how it was good for me. So let me try to just very quickly tell you what I tried to do in the book. Um, I um, I didn't write a biography of FDR. Right. It was a, a book um, with, uh, uh, you know, a few chapters of background biographical background to try to explain where he got the confidence that he needed right to pull the country out of the out of the depression or at least out of its mental depression since the economic you know problems didn't really end till the till we began providing arms for the allies just before the onset of world war ii um but it got the economy got better and and he restored hope right and so he wanted to know you know where he got the tools to do that so i had a chapter early in the book called warm springs dress rehearsal it was about how polio which he contracted at warm springs georgia and his lifting up the um um the, those who like him suffered from polio and showing great leadership and lifting their spirits, lifting them up and basically saying, you know, we can all walk again. I can walk again. And he, he never did walk again. Right. Um, it was kind of a little bit of a, a ruse where his sons and bodyguards would help him and he'd kind of seem like he was walking, but really he was being it
0: was like a point to point walk. I think is what his physicians called it with
1: his, yeah. yeah. He dragged along And, but what he was saying to America is if if I can walk, you can stand up and walk again. Right. of And so I wanted it was a conjuring act almost. And I wanted to explain how that happened. And so then I got into, you know, um, the 1932 campaign um, where he wasn't nominated until the fourth ballot uh, at the Democratic Convention in Chicago and. He was much maligned. We think of him as kind of this, you know, august figure. He's not literally on Mount Rushmore, but we think of him that way. And really, you know, at the time he was a, a, a much uh, dismissed lightweight. Is right. What they, what they thought of him. And so I take the reader through that whole period when he's underestimated. And the book mostly focuses on... Uh, 1932 and 1933, when, you know, he came to office amid a severe banking crisis and um, was able to, you know, launch these now famous fireside chats um, that uh, convinced the same people who had been taking their money out of the banks in these terrible, destructive bank runs uh, of the winter of 32 33 and after they listened to roosevelt on the radio they they actually put their money they took it from out of the mattress and they right put out of the banks and the economy uh survived and and you know the people didn't know whether whether it would and people thought democracy was at an end and in that sense it's very relevant for today uh, yes um, I think the economic relevance was more clear in 2008, 2009, and you know, I wrote a book about Obama's first year in office, and there were a lot of echoes of, of Roosevelt. Um, but I think, in terms of saving democracy, it's the book is more relevant now because you know, um, Studebaker had a car called the Dictator that sold pretty well. And a lot of people wanted a dictator and a lot of very prominent people thought democracy was not the way to organize society. Right. And was about worried about it. And at one point, a, a woman came to him and said, uh, you know, Mr. President, if you succeed, you'll be our greatest president. And if you fail, you'll be our worst president. And he said, no, if I fail, I'll be our last president. And interestingly, he, you know, he worked through Congress People later thought that he was acting. Republicans accused him years later of acting in a dictatorial fashion. But this is just at the same time that Hitler is coming in. And right. when people don't really know about Hitler yet. And Mussolini, who'd been in for several years, was popular. And the word dictator, if you can believe it, it actually had a positive connotation in 1933. So he made a, a conscious decision to not... Not move in a dictatorial direction, and to work right. in the system to, to lift the country up.
0: And you you talk about that quite a bit in the book, where there there was a bit of a crossroads in the New Deal, where it could have gone the path of maybe explicitly dictatorial powers for Roosevelt, but certainly more less along the lines of a social democratic administrative uh, welfare state, as as it in many ways turned out to be, and could have been a very centralized um, planned economy state in the line of the more socialistic form. And, and even with all of the reforms that he implemented that were more social democratic than they were explicitly socialist, there were people, um, especially I think in the re reelection campaign saying that, um, and Al Smith, who was, uh, Roosevelt's kind of political mentor uh, saying that the new deal reeked of socialism and, in no matter what he tried to do to, help the economy get back on its feet. He was accused of all of these things. And um, you may could dismiss the whole um, uh, smear campaign that they had against him. But there was a time, as you write in the book, where it really was at a crossroads of it could have put the country on a different direction. As you just said, uh, we could have ended up with not only a more centrally planned economy, but a more dictatorial leader in many respects and i think that one of the most important parts of roosevelt's legacy is that he did see that danger in assuming dictatorial powers and instead wanted to be as you said work he wanted to work within the system in order to help the country recover and you know as you write at the end of the chapter on the bank holiday and the banking crisis one of Uh, There was an individual who said that capitalism was saved in in seven days through the bank holiday. And that kind of encapsulates a lot of the importance of the 100 days, I think, is that it was Roosevelt's insistence that not only was the government doing something, and not only was that action so um, contrasted to the inaction of the previous administration, but as you said, from the time at Warm Springs, from that level up to the presidency, he gave people hope. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that is really one of the most important things that a president can do um and certainly FD, fdr certainly thought so you know he there's this quote in the book in which he says you know the presidency is a place of moral leadership and that importance of hope uh in his whole legacy in the legacy of the new deal as well i think is is one of the most important things to to ruminate on especially nowadays
1: yeah and just to go um to the uh the economic issues that you raise. So, um, you know, he, at the beginning of his presidency, uh, there were new dealers, more liberal, um, Democrats, uh, some liberal Republicans, which they had in those days, right. wanted him to nationalize the banks yes. take them over. And he said, no, you know, we're going to leave banking in private hands and um, reopen the healthy banks, uh, keep the weak banks closed and help those in the middle. And that was what they did. And it was actually Herbert Hoover's bank rescue plan that they worked out in in the middle of the night uh, when all the banks were crashing on uh, the night before the inauguration. Right. And then they you know, they started to work and then they changed positions at the table when Roosevelt took over, but the Hoover people were still being consulted. And then. Um, the capitalists all turned against Roosevelt, and he was actually a little bit annoyed by this, and he, he compared it to um, the drowning man who right. was saved by a lifeguard, namely him. And then he comes back to the lifeguard and says, Hey, lifeguard. You lost my silk hat. Right. <laughs> which is what rich people wore in those days, right? Right. And, you know, so he felt like he had saved them, and what was his reward? They called him a socialist. And when, you know, he uh, got Social Security enacted in 1935, you mentioned 1936. Um, in that election, his opponent was Alf Landon of Kansas. Right. Uh, basically, employers all across the country they put into the pay envelopes of millions and millions of workers. Vote Republican, otherwise, you're you're going to get a smaller check because of this socialist social security idea. And instead, Roosevelt, instead of those workers, you know, listening to their bosses, they followed roosevelt and he carried all but two states when he ran for re-election maine and vermont and and which were very republican in those days and so um you know and in places like west virginia i mean he was a huge huge hero yes it, it really um uh it's very striking to me the way West Virginia voters, just to focus on that state for a minute, you know, have changed in their attitude toward, you know, what government might owe them. And um, um, I think you actually see it a little bit in, you know, Joe Manchin still being a Democrat, right, Right, recognizing that, you know, uh, we can't all do it on our own, as the Republicans uh, like to argue, Um, but just to give you a sense of Roosevelt's staying power in West Virginia. So, in 1960, when you had the famous primary between Hubert Humphrey and John F. Kennedy, and my first boss was running uh, Kennedy's campaign in Kanawha County. And um, the way they won, and that put Kennedy on the road to the White House, was they brought Franklin Roosevelt Jr. down from New York to campaign for Kennedy, and that was according to Charlie Peters, my uh, my mentor and boss who was there, that was the key. So in that sense, you know, it's FDR's popularity in West Virginia led to John F. Kennedy. Right. Followed from there. And and uh, my my boss said that, you know, in 1960, he would go into um, homes throughout West Virginia, many of them very impoverished, and he would see a photograph of you know, the family and then there would be a picture of FDR. Right. And the West Virginians felt that, that he had literally saved their lives. Right. Uh, and um, and they, they remembered that you know, there was a time when government um, could really deliver for them.
0: Right. And that is um, equally felt when you talk to a lot of older folks here in Eastern Kentucky. Um, You know, my my great grandparents and my grandparents, you know, the biggest reasons that they when they registered to vote registered as Democrats was Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal and the legacy of the New Deal and um, the government being, as you said, a force to help them improve their lives. And this is actually what I'm planning to write my, my senior thesis about is how the new deal led to that Um, not in, in some sense it did lead to a kind of political loyalty of a lot of folks in Appalachia to the democratic party, but more importantly to a expectation that government should be there to help improve material conditions of people who had been as, as Roosevelt put it at the, at the bottom of the economic pyramid. And, and that legacy is uh, even with as, more regions of Appalachia tend to vote Republican. When you when you know when you talk to people on the ground, the the core ideals of uh, that a lot of people still have of government being an institution that has responsibilities to them and should make good on those responsibilities is still very powerful. And and I think that that is one avenue that that the Democrats now have to to appeal to to folks around here is by going back to that. Model of Roosevelt and the New Deal, I just read a book about the twenty twenty democratic primaries, and towards the end, when it was Sanders and Biden as really the only two serious contenders left, it was a uh, Congressman Ro Khanna, who was i think co chair of Sanders campaign, who was telling him that he needed to lean more into that you know being the the next phase of the New deal, how that could help him and and I think that that 's an avenue that's still open to Democrats now, but more importantly, I think that and this goes back to another. Point that you make in the book is that how uh, the New Deal redrafted, as you as you say many times in the book, the social contract in America. How you know we could not just rely solely on ourselves, and we couldn't trust the um, you know throws and, and such of the market. There had to be a force in the background that could make sure that, regardless of how the market ended up behaving as a result of different investments or whatever that a bottom line of care would always be there for folks who needed it. And that's uh, uh, symbolized in in social security and so many other of the programs that whether they started in the new deal and continue to this day, or whether they were inspired by the new deal, such as many uh, programs of the great society and continue to this day, that expectation of government to do something and, and to be active, uh, I think is still very, very uh, resonant today. And I think that's, especially now as we, you know, with the past two years of the pandemic have been, three years now, have been having a new conversation about the responsibilities of government and what government owes to its citizens. I, I think in many ways it's the same conversation that we were having in, in the 30s with with Roosevelt. And uh, I think that's one reason why it's so important for people, especially, you know, a younger generation like myself who uh, doesn't remember uh, their parents, do, my parents, don't talk about Franklin Roosevelt because they didn't live through him. But my grandparents might. It, it's important to ruminate on that part of his legacy. I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're touching on important points, and you know this this question of what we owe each other. I mean, what is a a New Deal? A deal is a contract. It's a, a social contract, and you hear some talk on the left now in American politics about a Green New Deal, uh, which would, you know. They didn't get but if uh if this latest inflation reduction act goes through it will be a partial green new deal and very very significant investments in clean energy which create jobs and protect the planet at the same time right you have you know the very large infrastructure bill which people have almost forgotten about now you now have a large uh bill uh, supporting the semiconductor industry, the the chips bill. And so these are in the spirit of the New Deal, all of these, these bills, and they also, uh, they, they represent a really stark difference between the parties, e- even when some of them, like, get some, you know, on, on the chips bill, because it was in many ways directed at China, you know, there was some Republican support. But ideologically, there there is this continuing distinction between Democrats and Republicans on this core economic issue um, of what the government owes us and what we owe the government, you know, in terms of... Um, you know uh, our willingness to work so fdr was not big on um welfare even though aid right. to families with dependent children started in under the new deal Right. that was originally seen more um for widows and orphans uh and um bill clinton's welfare reform was more in the spirit of fdr than i think a lot of Progressives recognize who might like to, you know, attack it. So Roosevelt really believed in work. Right. And I think that um, you hear some of these themes echoed by uh, Biden, by, you know, in, in, in your region. Uh, you hear Tim Ryan, who's running for the Senate in Ohio. He's, uh, you know, echoing some of these, these uh, pro labor. Pro-working families arguments right. are often directed at corporations as right. being, um, you know, the source not just of our jobs but of of a kind of a um, oligarchy uh, that is not working in the interests of the American public and that at a minimum. These corporations and wealthy individuals need to be taxed more. So, Roosevelt was a huge believer in taxing the rich. Right. And, you know, he basically thought, um, if you can believe this, that uh, past a certain amount of income, uh, you should be taxed, you know, over 90%. Right. And that level of taxation existed for a long time. In this country. Um, So I'm, you know, I'm looking at the same things you are, which is will um, voters in Appalachia return to their kind of economic roots or will the so-called social issues that are sometimes used to distract people from their core economic interests? Will they, um, you know, continue to uh, to dominate? Um, I, I mean, I was really really struck by how well Trump did in your part of the country. And I don't fully understand it. I mean, I I think it was my my. Sense was that a lot of it was just kind of like a big middle finger to liberal elites, Um, but, um, you know, done uh, a little bit more out of emotion than out of a real sense of whether he was going to advance um, their material well-being
0: I think that a lot of it was uh, certainly a bit of both you know the the idea of how you know for the past few election cycles um I think since I think for Kentucky 1996 was the last time that uh, the state went democratic. And I think that may have been the last time for West Virginia as well. Uh, I think a lot of it is since, you know, in that time we've consistently read this region is consistently voted Republican. I think that a lot of that has to do with how, you know, there are a lot of folks around here of every, you know, political stripe, you know, we've you've got conservative and progressive folks who in a sense feel the same way in that the um, democratic party has, Shifted its focus to areas where "quote unquote" it can win. So the the idea that there's really nothing to gain here has led them to not focus as many resources on Appalachia and and you know the different um, uh, folks who the, the folks who live here. But I, I think that when you really talk about those core economic and material issues, um, that that is what is at the forefront of of most people's in in my experience, when I talk politics with people down here, um you know regardless of whether they're conservative or progressive or what have you, their main concern is their material well-being and if you can um, as a elected leader better that in some in some way, then you'll uh, then that that goes a long way in in folks down here believing in you and and rightly so, you know with the history that we have of of, um, poverty and, and, uh, extraction of resources without much investment being put back into the region. Uh, that that's understandable. I think why the material conditions are at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you again for your, your time. Um, and, and being interviewed, uh, your book is, is one of my favorites that I've read and I'll be drawing on it a lot. I suspect for, uh, for my thesis. And I just want to give you the floor. If there's anything, any final thoughts you have about, uh, Roosevelt's legacy and why it's important to to think of today. Anything else you'd like to say? Uh, the floor is yours.
1: Well, I think, um, you know, we we haven't maybe talked enough. Um, and this is my fault um, about the um, what he called uh, bold, persistent experimentation. And sure. Said, you know, we need. In one of his campaign speeches, we need bold, persistent experimentation. Take one method and try it. If it doesn't work, try something else. But above all, try something. Right. And this idea that um, government has a responsibility to come at these problems and to um, to you know work to solve them, and um, not just you know cut taxes for the very rich and hope that it trickles down to everybody else which is what the republican position has been for quite some time now right and and the you know i think the um the idea of um saving capitalism by building from the bottom up rather than from the top down is what um we, you know, we have to kind of get back to because right. income disparities now are like those of the 1920s, and a lot of the um, main effects of the New Deal was to um, lessen those disparities, and so you know the 1930s were a very very difficult time, um, and. You know i don't think anybody would want to go back to them but but there was more of a sense of we're all in this together and it wasn't just that you know almost the entire country was behind roosevelt um, because to listen to the debate in washington even then it could be very bitter very acrimonious right and the uh the people who ran the newspapers were all anti-roosevelt it was uh, you know, today, there are a lot of billionaires who are Democrats in those days. <laughs> right. Billionaires, like were almost all of them were Republicans. And it was very much of a capital labor kind of um, class struggle, class struggle. Um, but, you know, Roosevelt knew that if he if he didn't address some of these issues that socialism and even communism, while not likely in the United States for a variety of reasons that we don't have time to talk about, you know, would be more potent in this country. And so, um, he was, um, you know, acting to expand the, the the pie, but in a, in a rational way that lifted people up. And then of course, you know, he, uh, we haven't talked about the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was kind of the model jobs program. And, and you know, they planted um, two billion trees, which is something right. those interested in uh, in addressing climate change could le- learn from. But it was also the beginning of, you know, the whole idea of national service. Sure. Is something that we need to get back to uh, in this country. I think we need some kind of a, a national service program. Um, and I... Um you know, I think the other um, big legacy was the New Deal political coalition. Right. And again, you know, this is what the Democrats have to reassemble if they're going to uh, be successful politically. So there are just a lot of lessons that we can learn from FDR. And also he was very colorful and right. a lot of kind of fun Stories about him and the people around him. So sure. I want to thank you uh, uh, for, you know, giving me the uh, the chance to talk about one of my favorite subjects.
0: Well, y'all, thank you so much for tuning in for this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. And thank you guys for everything that you do to support the podcast in whatever way that you do. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you, so thank you. If you like that music that you're listening to in the background, that is a piece called In the Sweet By and By by a great artist named Zechariah Hickman. And you can find him on YouTube. Be sure to check his channel out. Be sure to follow the podcast on social media for all of the updates going forward. It's at App Firesides on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make sure to join us next week for another installment of our Sights to See and Places to Be in Appalachia series, and be sure to join us the following week for another full-length episode, but until then, stay safe, stay healthy, love your neighbor, and do good things. Catch you guys next time.